So during this Lent, we've been making our way through Lamentations. And uh, last week was a sober week. Well, actually, none of these are particularly fun. But uh, last week in particular, we took a look at the siege of Jerusalem, of uh, just the devastation and starvation uh, that was rained down upon Jerusalem. And, and it totaled the city, and in the aftermath of that, after all the death and destruction is where our author is, writing this book of lamentation, these poems filled with grief. And So to better understand all this, to better understand this whole thing, this whole story, what we need to do today is try and wrap our heads around a couple of different ideas that were floating around in the air at that time. So the first idea is there was this idea that Jerusalem was basically invincible. Now here's the reasoning behind it. So what's Jerusalem? Jerusalem is God's city, right? Because after all, Jerusalem is where God's temple is. It's supposedly where God lives. And so God's never going to let that be destroyed. I mean, God's kind of... God. God's all-powerful, right? So, of course God's not going to let it be destroyed. And then there's this prophecy that comes up that David's lineage, David's lineage will always be on the throne. So, ergo, the monarchy can't be destroyed. The temple can't be destroyed. Thus, Jerusalem must be invincible, right? Because God would come in and stop anything bad from happening to it. And you know what? They had evidence to prove it too. They had evidence to back up their case. Some 100, 150 years ago, their former sibling slash northern neighbor, Israel, was wiped off the face of the earth by the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians almost got Jerusalem as well. Almost. But at the very last second, something happened. The people couldn't figure out how to describe it other than by a miracle. Because right as hope was running out and defeat looked inevitable, the enemy Assyrian army just packed up and left. They just left. Right before Jerusalem was about to fall. So see, that proves it, right? That proves it. Jerusalem must be invincible. So that's the first of these ideas that's floating around. Jerusalem is invincible. However, there's a thing about this idea, right? This is uh, actually a very convenient idea in this way because it is fundamentally testable, right? How do you prove whether or not it's true? If Jerusalem and the temple get destroyed, it's pretty clearly not true, right? It's pretty black and white. There's not a whole lot of wiggle room. It's pretty straightforward. And so if you remember from last week... Babylonians laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, starved everybody to death and busted through the walls and destroyed everything, including the temple. And they're sure as heck not going to let a, a king get back on the throne. So, so the idea that David's line will still be on the throne is now kaput. You've got the temple destroyed. So it must be wrong. It's demonstrably false, this idea that Jerusalem is invincible. Now put yourself in their shoes, right? Put yourself in their shoes. You believed this idea. And not, not just like superstition kind of thing, like a deep religious belief. 
like, like deep down. I mean, it, it determined how they lived their lives, how they fought their wars, right? It's, it's, it's just got definitively proved wrong. So they're reeling from that. And so what, oh, intrepid citizen of Jerusalem, do you do now? Well, you ask, why? Why did this happen? And the second, the answer came up with was the second idea for today. So the first idea that Jerusalem is invincible, is gone. That's no good anymore. But to explain why, the survivors tapped into this one idea that's another part of their religious tradition that's been old, been around for a long time. It's this thing called the doctrine of retribution. You don't need to remember it. You don't need to know it. Don't worry. Um, But it's this theology in the Bible that... You guys might have heard this around in, in modern contexts as well, right? It goes like this. If you do good stuff, good things will happen to you. If you do bad stuff, bad things will happen to you. And then, take the inverse, right? If you have bad stuff happen to you, then you must have done something bad, right? You must have done something to deserve it. It's this idea that God basically doles out good and bad. It's actually rather formulaic, right? It's exactly in proportion to how you act. God responds to that. And we see this throughout the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, especially some of the older sections. It's one of those kind of baseline ideas and thoughts, theologies that we see. And I mean, it's completely wrong, but it's it's really solid point of view, isn't it? Because... it makes it so that the world and your life is under your control, right? You can see the calculus of how well somebody is living right on the face of it, right out in the open, and you have very concrete steps as to how to make your life better. So you look around and you see, oh, all right, who, this guy's rich and famous. Well, that must mean that they're a really good person, Right, And if I want to be like them, if I want to be rich and famous and powerful, then the solution is I need to be a really good person and God will reward me for that. But what's the flip side of this idea? You have a terrible tragedy happen to you. What does the question then become? What did you do to deserve that? And the worse the offense, the worse the punishment. So if you have a catastrophe happen to you, I don't know. So there's this, this doctrine of retribution. You get what you deserve, and it's this kind of baseline underlying a lot of the thought in the Bible and from which a lot of things spring up. And this is where lamentation starts to get really fascinating, really fascinating, because we start to see in real time the author wrestling with this theology and realizing its inadequacies. Because parts of the book go right along with this doctrine of retribution, right? This traditional theology. They're like, we sinned, we're horrible, we brought this on ourselves. Right? That's the very traditional theology. It's the doctrine of retribution. But you start to run into an issue when you ask them, okay, if that's the case, what did you do? What was so bad that this happened to you? Hmm. We don't know. The author doesn't know. 
Different people in different parts of the Bible have ideas. The author of Lamentations doesn't have a clue. It's con when confronted with that question, it starts to waffle. Oh, we must have deserved it. We, we sinned horribly. But don't ask me what we actually did to deserve it, because I don't know, but it must have been big. It must have been bad, because it was horrendous what happened to us. This theology, this doctrine of retribution, this idea that they held is starting to come apart at the seams. It's starting to rupture. And then we can see it even more clearly in today's passage that we read. Um, it was kind of fun watching everybody uh, squirm as we read the passage. That was delightful. Um, I really love these passages mostly because afterwards people are super unclear of like, should I say thanks be to God? Uh, I don't know. Anyway, I loved it. Um, so it, anyway, but everybody was squirming, right, when we read this passage today of how it was talking about God. And for most of us, it didn't sync up with how you understand God, this loving God of mercy and compassion, right? Maybe you don't believe in an incredibly angry God. I know that a lot of us don't. And so, but we ask ourselves, is that? What we heard in the passage today, is that the God that I know and love? It's the question we ask ourselves when we hear that kind of stuff. But the thing is, that's also the question the author's asking themselves as they're saying that stuff. So notice what happens in this passage. It's not an accident that at the very moment that the book of Lamentations, uh, very moment in the book of Lamentations that the author starts intensifying these questions, starts really wrestling with this, trying to get into it in a deep existential level, just way deep down. Why would God do this to them, right? At the very moment these questions are really starting to come up, we see the imagery used about God start to shift. We start to get some of the most angry vitriolic and violent images of God. In fact, they don't, frankly, they don't present God that much different than an abusive partner. So just look at the language they use. Showing no compassion, devouring, stonewalling them in wrath, right? Causing rampant and indiscriminate destruction, shaming, fierce burning rage, refusing to help using other nations to slaughter people, wanton killing, burning against them like a fire that engulfs everything, right? God targets those things that are most meaningful to Jerusalem. The author even describes God as an enemy more than once. Uh, folks, this is the language of abuse, is it not? And look, you don't have to be Freud here to figure out there's something going on beneath the surface, right? These images drastically intensify. This language gets so much stronger at the very moment that the questions and doubts about God emerge. All of a sudden, we start to see these cracks in the, in the pat answers of the doctrine of retribution, of this idea that you get what you deserve. Because in order to keep that theology, that worldview going, you have to keep spinning into more and more extreme ideas about God, to paint a more and more extreme portrait of God, to the extreme that it's 
no longer tenable. And then all of a sudden, maybe it's not as simple as we deserve what we got. Because in this moment that we see here, their theology is rupturing. They're learning. They, they learn this thing from birth, right? You get what you deserve. Uh, that if something horrendous happens to us, we must, have, we must have done something to earn it. But I have no clue what it is. And I'm starting to doubt that anything we could do could warrant this bad of a response. That's not who God is. I don't know, in, in, in order for my theology to hold up, in light of how bad this was, it would need to paint this extreme picture of God. But that's starting to go way too far. And we start to see these cracks form in their theology. And you know what the kicker is? The, the straw that broke the ba- broke the camel's back <clears throat> for the first time in the book we start to hear about the effects on children on the babies they're starving in the streets they're fainting from hunger they're crying out for relief but there's nothing to do to help them because e- even if we deserved d- destruction right even if we brought something on ourselves like this What did the babies ever do? Why did they deserve it? Why are they caught up in all this if it's supposed to be we get what we deserve? And these pat answers are crumbling in the face of extreme distress. I I, I don't know if you guys have ever had a a worldview-shattering moment. Um, I know for me it was this feeling of unmooredness, this, this sense of not knowing which way was up anymore, right? And, and I just, all I knew was my theology didn't hold up in that situation. And, and I was in this liminal space, this in-between, between the, the threshold of the old and the new. And it was profoundly disturbing, Right, because because my previous foundation had been disintegrated, right? It had been it destroyed, but there wasn't yet a new one to stand on. And that's similar to what we have here. It's this snapshot, this moment, this frame in time of this event that's happening, of this rupture, this cracking, this destruction of this theological system, the doctrine of retribution, the idea that you get what you deserve. Now, now there's still a lot of the old stuff hanging around. They still try and make it work within that system of what we do to deserve it. It's not completely gone. But here we can see it splintering. We can see the author trying to figure out what to do. Which frankly, to me, is an admirable thing that we can learn from. Right? Not just blindly sticking to one's theological guns no matter what, right? Not just hunkering down and bearing it and just like plowing through and just resolutely fighting off any challenges to my thoughts or my ideologies or my theologies, right? But allowing yourself to change, allowing yourself to grow in your theology, accepting that this thing that you learned from birth, maybe it doesn't hold up. 
Now, in the circumstances of the author, it was forced onto them by extreme duress. And I certainly hope for you that it doesn't take such brutal happenings to, to prompt you to this kind of growth. But even though it's, it is inescapable, and it's uncomfortable, and it's a risk, but this process can also lead to greater growth and spiritual maturity. So, this Lenten season, this period between now and Easter, may you take the journey with me and with us deep into self-examination, into taking up those painful things that we would rather not look at, so that on the other side we can emerge more whole. May it be so.